0: The world's most ambitious and far-reaching data privacy regulation continues to create waves. Since last May 2018, when the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, went into effect, essentially every company that does business in or with Europe has been impacted. But given the growth and complexity of things like the Internet of Things, or IoT, cloud computing, machine learning, and other technologies, Is the regulation already out of touch with reality? Do we need to rethink the laws governing the use of data and customer PI? The GDPR is here and we need to comply, but what's the longer term outlook and how might that model be adjusted? Well, one of my favorite people. I am a big fangirl of this gentleman. There may be no one better qualified to assess all this than my next guest, Christopher Millard. Cybersecurity, data protection, privacy. You like to stay ahead of the curve and listen to experts who are leading the way in deriving greater value from data with a more organized approach to data privacy. You're like us, just a few deviations past the norm. You are a privacy sigma rider. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Michelle Denity again, Chief Privacy at Cisco still, and your Chief Sigma Writer Guide for the day. I'm excited to be joined by someone who's done a great deal of research on data protection in the law, especially as it applies to today's evolving technologies. Christopher Millard is professor of privacy and information law at Queen Mary University of London, quite, where he heads up the Cloud Legal Project at the university's Center for Commercial Law Studies. He's also senior counsel to the law firm Bristow's. Incidentally the same firm that brought us under BCR compliance. Thank you, Bristos. Christopher has you're more most welcome. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Happy customer. Christopher has more than 35 years of experience as a technology. 35 years, you're only like 10. he ages backwards <laughs> in both academia and legal practice and brings some fascinating, if not sobering, insight into the challenges of GDPR and similar laws all around the globe. With that, welcome, Christopher.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you today.
0: I'm so excited. Now, one of the little-known trivia facts is at the IAP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, for those who are not in the in the know, um, it took us several years to convince them that cloud computing was going to be a trend that every privacy professional really needed to understand. And my very first panel with Christopher was the very first panel on cloud compute, for privacy people. That was a oh, while yes, ago.
1: Indeed. That was indeed some time ago.
0: <laughs> it's kind of amazing now to think that we had to convince people that that was important. But you know, so goes new technology. So I, I want to um, also shamelessly have you pump your 2013 book, Cloud Computing Law. Can you give us a little bit of background on you know how did you come to research cybersecurity, data protection? How did you first get introduced to cloud? I mean, who the heck are you, Christopher?
1: Well, thanks indeed. So I won't give you my entire uh, life history, but I stumbled <laughs> it's on interesting. Uh, technology law and data protection way back in 1982 at the time. I would just finished a master's in uh, criminology at the University of Toronto, and I was having a blast there, to be honest. I was playing keyboards in a student rock band, and I didn't want to come back to England yet. <laughs> so I was fortunate to get another scholarship to do a master's of law in LLM. And then I had to pick a topic. So I went off to the law library late one night thinking I'd become an entertainment lawyer. And I stumbled on what was then called computer law, uh, including data protection. And kind of the rest is is history. And I've never been short of new things to to learn and explore and discuss with people. So in the early 80s, it was classic sort of computer uh, law. And uh, the UK had the new Data Protection Act, 84. Then we did telecoms. Um, deregulation. Then in the 90s, the internet came along. Well, it was already around, of course, but it, it sort of exploded into public consciousness. And e-commerce um, uh, also expanded rapidly. Um, but really, for the last 10 years, my main focus, both as a practitioner um, and as an academic, has been various aspects of cloud computing and the Internet of Things and anything that sort of cyber-physical Related to that, we've done work on machine learning and um, robotics and blockchain and on and on. But the book you very kindly mentioned, uh, Cloud Computing Law, which has been out a few years now, actually, um, brings together in one place a whole bunch of uh, research work. Um, in relation to cloud computing, including some empirical work on what really gets negotiated in cloud deals. Right. Uh, what is what you find if you look at thirty standard cloud contracts in different countries? Are they actually enforceable? A whole load of stuff on how data protection rules apply in practice, as well as things like law enforcement access to data in clouds, uh, consumer protection, etc.
0: Yeah, and I think I think, and I want to get into GDPR in just a second, but. I think um, it's really the intersectionality of these trends, really, and how we want to compute and relate to computing. And then I think there's always this sort of forgotten thing. The innovation is cool and interesting, but at the end of the day, you've got to do a deal and and Mm -hmm. talking about who is doing what and how do you write down and negotiate between parties how do you do that deal? I think that's often forgotten in this space, don't you think?
1: I agree totally. And indeed, I suspect we'll discuss this uh, more today. But there's a, there's a bit of a divide between uh, privacy and data protection as, as theoretical, almost abstract concepts and what really happens in the real world affecting individuals, but also, as you say, in terms of deals. But data is is just so valuable now in economic terms. It it is actually central to many major corporate deals. And people don't really know how to handle it, how to value it, how to protect it, how to assess the risks, what happens when you transfer personal data from one organization to another. Um, It's actually very complex. And often these these, um, issues don't surface until a little bit too late in the deal making process. I don't know whether that's been your experience too.
0: Absolutely. And I, you know, I think when, you know, so we've just passed uh, yet another consumer electronics conference and there was absolutely nothing about shared value creation on data. um, the, The, privacy word was dropped once in a while, but it's almost yeah. like this, there's, there's this whole shadow world going on out there, but at the end of the day, none of the plastic or silica is all that valuable. It's the data. Absolutely. So I, let's let's go back to Europe a little bit. Um, although you're in Britain now, we won't talk about what's going on there. Who knows? <laughs> Who
1: knows? <laughs> what? Stranger than fiction.
0: <laughs> oh my land! That you know, it's way too early in the day and too late in your day to have too many cocktails over that one. But we will at some point. Um, let's talk about GDPR a little bit, and and let's kind of stay on this on this um, value and deal-making, as well as fines, because I think the fines are often the thing focusing folks on downside value. What do you think about, you know, how how is your perception now? We're almost a year out of enforcement of GDPR, um, and and how's it it going, I guess, is my question.
1: Yeah, that's a good uh, question, Michelle. I think it's still a bit early to say because we're getting fines, but they're mostly based on actions that were, or enforcement proceedings that started before GDPR came into full effect uh, in 2018. Much so the to the relief of not, every
0: attorney, right? They're going, okay, wait, well, we can yeah, date this before.
1: Yet, but, <laughs> but there are some new cases coming along. And I think that this year we will start to see uh, the first, you know, really big eye-watering fines. Um, but I would say that, uh, as I often say to, um, to clients and to colleagues and students, um, don't be overfocused on the fines as uh, the biggest risk, because it, for, for large organisations, the, the question of confidence in that organisation, the question of reputational risk, can sometimes eclipse the the bottom line of the fine that is actually imposed for a particular breach of a law. And we've seen some pretty spectacular fluctuations, for example, in the stock value of some of the big US tech companies. Uh, as they go through the sort of roller coaster of revelations about particular data handling practices, as as they start to get holed up before um, regulators and legislators to explain what they're doing. And these things can actually have a a bottom line impact that uh, is is greater than the maximum potential fines. Uh, But I should say that the fines themselves can be quite big. We're looking at up to 4% of global uh, revenues, not profits, revenues, uh, you know, which, which is is a big deal for multi-billion-dollar organization.
0: Yeah, it's huge, and I, I think um, so. I've been following ever since California imposed the requirement of informing consumers, in particular, when certain types of data were lost. Um, these breach reporting laws have certainly spurred a multi-trillion-dollar, with a T, industry in security. But if you follow the stock prices, they will. Typically, dip for a little bit, and they'll they'll lose that that paper value, and then they'll pop back up, and be relatively stabilized. and And so, I have a question for you. And none of this is on anything that we talked about beforehand, so you can defer. Or tell me I'm crazy. That's totally cool with me, um, <laughs> which you know is unexpected for me. But you know, when I'm looking at stock price, I'm looking at a couple things, and I'm thinking one. There's, there's sort of the factor of dumb luck. So TJ Maxx or, or TJX, the company name, that fell right before the last recession. So it seems to me like, A, it was an external party that attacked them. B, we were in the beginning of a big recession. And what do they sell? Cheap stuff. So the fact that people continue to go to the stores and buy cheap stuff Um, Their stock price dipped dramatically and then went right, right back up. And we've seen the same thing with Sony and some of these other things with time. My question to you is something I've been noodling in my head is when I look at the composition of those boards and the types of the people who are investing in and doing particularly robo trading in public markets, there are no security people on those boards. There are no chief privacy officers sitting on the boards of Sony, Target, um, you know, name a breach. I do not see chief privacy officers sitting on those public boards. So are there people asking the question in the market for buying and selling stock? That's question number one. And do you think if that if that premise is true, what if we had more expertise on data and data markets and, and deal making and data sitting on those boards that are governing com- companies and those that are investing in trading in companies? What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, that, that's a very uh, interesting um, couple of questions. Uh, I think just to respond to your comment about the the, the share price, the stock price is dipping and, and recovering. That's absolutely true. And, and that's true for some of the very biggest players that have been uh, hit by, uh, let's just say, a lot of public scrutiny. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that even if the stock price Substantially um, recovers. Uh, the, the regulators and legislators won't forget what they've seen, often on primetime television. Right. And it, it's possible that as people begin to realise, you know, that the core value in so many businesses is data. Indeed, not just data, but often specifically personal data. Uh, then that history and those headline reports. Even if you know the stock prices has, has bounced back from the depression following uh, an investigation or a fine, I think those things can live on uh, for quite a long time. Um, and, and in terms of the expertise on board's point, um, I, I think, um, I mean, you, you must know more about this uh, in some ways than me, but my, my perception is that it's changing and that GDPR, funnily enough, uh, much though I criticize it in many detailed points, uh, has been a catalyst yeah. for getting businesses to take uh, privacy and data protection seriously as a core business issue and a core governance issue. Uh, So we are starting to see um, individuals, uh, whatever their title is, to do with information or data or security uh, or technology, um, having a much higher profile within large organizations. And in some cases, that means they are getting a seat on the main board or at the very least they are being consulted frequently and listened to much more carefully than they would have been in the past.
0: Yeah, I I think I'm I'm seeing that trend start to occur too because it we've certainly invested a lot of time and effort getting GDPR ready. And we, the industry, we, the globe, not just we, the company I currently work for. But I think you're absolutely right in in unearthing this data and these data assets and the way that we're doing business. Are we getting into cloud? Are we looking at a, a public ledger to permanently record certain artifacts of our data in, in blockchain or other types of technology? I think as we're looking Looking at how we move forward to grow our business, to change our workforce, to meet the new changing workforce where they are, we're looking at data as a reputational risk, but also hopefully an asset. So I want to pick Absolutely. up on something that you could, that you that you said um, that although it has some benefits and some influences, you know, what's the deal with GDPR, Christopher? Like what? How, what are what are some of its failings, if you will, or some of its challenges? I think I hate to say failings. I don't want to hurt its.
1: Feelings. No, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I mean I think you could use either word. Actually, <laughs> um, I mean I, I've been struggling with how you apply this stuff in practice from well before um, GDPR, and indeed in the eighties, the early laws. Were, well, they started in the seventies, but the early yeah. laws uh, were very high level. Uh, principle statement type laws. And then when the data protection uh, directive came along, uh, it, was, uh, it appeared first as a draft 1990, um, was adopted in, in 95, it's supposed to be implemented in 98, didn't really get around to being implemented yeah. in a lot of countries until 2000, so that was a 10-year process already. That was more detailed, a little bit more granular, but the GDPR is a, is a complete step change in terms of complexity. So on the one on the one side, it has these still these very high-level principles, which are now, in Europe, human rights principles. They're embedded in our Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU. So data protection is a human right. Um, that really is as high-level as you can get. And then on the other side, as you well know, when you dig into the weeds of GDPR, you find all this incredibly bureaucratic and complicated... Uh, record-keeping stuff and trying to assess whether or not you have to notify a regulator at a particular point, not just for a data breach, but because you want to engage in what might be considered risky uh, processing because it's something new using um, IoT or machine learning or blockchain or robotics or whatever. Um, so it's become a whole industry, and you know, tens of thousands of jobs are being created around the world because of GDPR. It's, it's highly rules-based. Uh, extremely granular, um, and as I say, uh, very bureaucratic and very labor intensive. And I think that's difficult because on the one hand, we're trying to get people to take privacy and data protection seriously as individual rights issues. But then we sort of, uh, they just encounter this wall of stuff they have to manage to uh, attempt to be even reasonably compliant with rule sets like GDPR.
0: Yeah, it's kind of overwhelming. It's it's interesting because there's this sort of Asimovian fear of the robots are coming, all of our jobs, and yet you're absolutely right. Tens of thousands of jobs have been created just meeting the large number of requirements that have to be met before you even launch a service into the marketplace.
1: Yes, and um, I think the other complication around this is that uh, the, the urge to regulate technology, which has been around in the UK for at least 150 years. We mm-hmm. had a thing called the UK Locomotive Act 1865, which set a speed limit for locomotives including automobiles of uh, two miles an hour in cities, and the absolutely crazy four miles an hour out in the countryside. Ooh, four, miles an, yeah, four miles an hour. Christopher, go down. This is pre-Tesla. Um, <laughs> and a guy carrying a red flag had to walk in front of the vehicles. Now, if you fast forward to Today, in fact, throughout my career, uh, nearly 37 years now as a technology lawyer, it's, it's frequently stated that there ought to be a law against this new technology, or at the very least, it ought to be heavily regulated. Maybe we should even have a new regulator. This keeps coming up. And lately, uh, the hype has been around AI, uh, you know, which is a, is a, a widely misused term, but we don't have time yes. to go into that today, particularly narrow no, we, AI. We can, we can talk learn. about
0: that being a misused term because... Um, I, I go to battle on that one. I like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a great thing for the press because they can, they can get out their Terminator pictures and everything else, and the robots <laughs> yeah. are coming. They're going to take off jobs. They're going to kill us, whatever, which is, is a load of hype on the whole. Uh, it doesn't mean there aren't real issues in there, but they're much more nuanced and much more challenging when it yeah. comes to using things like machine learning, technologies, techniques, and processes to um, change the way that we... Uh, learn about uh, connections between things, how to improve processes. Uh, I, obviously these, all of these technologies can be used in beneficial but also uh, potentially harmful ways but there, it, it's just too much to explain all of that in a short um, piece in a popular newspaper. So uh, what we get is this sort of binary um, polarization where either AI is going to solve all the problems that we've ever had or it's going to kill us all. And Clearly, neither of those is necessarily true.
0: It's true. And, you know, it's amazing. And my producer is going to roll her eyes at me really quickly on this one. But, you know, when you think about, I don't know if it's the third page cutie or the five page cutie, like we're going to take a whole page looking at boobs. Boobs are ancient. But we won't take two columns to talk about what actually is AI, what actually is the risk. Indeed. This is sexy technology.
1: Well, indeed. And, uh, And one of the things I wanted to mention, actually, is, um the, uh, the frequent calls we hear now for don't trust the robots, don't trust the machines, make sure there's always a human in the loop who can be fair and reasonable and objective and um, empathic and all these other things humans are supposed to be. Now, actually, if you look at the, the, the research, humans don't have such a great track record when it comes to being consistent and fair, and objective, and so on. And, anyone uh, who's ever been <laughs> married
0: knows this for sure, Christopher.
1: Uh, I'm not going to go there. But that, <laughs> I mean, there, there are plenty of studies. So, for example, one of the ones that is often cited uh, involves um, uh, Israeli judges in parole board hearings, where somebody right. took a very large data set, and they tried to control for all the variables, what was the offense, what, what was the sentence, uh, what was the, you know, all the probation reports, all that stuff. and. Uh, it turned out the only statistically significant uh, factor was how long is it since the judge or judges had breakfast or lunch? Yeah. So it becomes a sort of biorhythm, break question. Now, that may sound very human. You know, robots don't actually need uh, exactly the same breaks as humans. Right. Um, but, I mean, we, we flatter ourselves a bit too much, I think, as, as humans. Uh, another example... I suppose is in terms of uh, pre-selecting candidates for hiring processes, um, and even in fact in terms of assessing school children. So there's a big study from Florida uh, which showed that uh, when school teachers were tasked with identifying gifted students for a fast track, um, the the white students did twice as well as the Hispanic students. Once they gave that system, they, they got a computer involved and they went into an algorithmic process. Turns out the uh, scores of the Hispanic students tripled. So, you know, we have all these bias. Now, I'm not criticizing these school teachers. I'm not suggesting they were deliberately unfair. A lot of these biases in humans are unconscious. Uh, We don't know we have them. So my um, pushback to the GDPR, which has, as as you know, a very specific provision that says you have a right to... um, uh, request a, a review by a human of a decision made by a machine that significantly affects you, uh, my, ro- my sort of riposte to that would be, well, what if we can get to the point where, in particular contexts at least, um, there's, there's a ton of data that shows that machines are likely to be more objective, more consistent, fairer than humans. I'd like to appeal to a robot against a decision made by a human.
0: Yeah, I think it should kind of go both ways. I I feel like, you know, and then we could we could get into a whole nother thing. And I'd love it if we can schedule. It's hard. I've I've been chasing Christopher like a a shameless fangirl for almost a year now. But I, I would like to come back and just talk about just this topic on on ethics and kind of both ways, because just like you have to bring a snack to your parole hearing, you have to make sure that the coders that are coding these algorithms, they are bringing human sensibilities and and biases to the table as well. So maybe it's maybe it's the case where you have to have some human decision making, some robo, and then maybe cross check each other. I'm not sure.
1: I I agree. And I'd love to talk further about that because, um, you pushed another button to me there by mentioning ethics, which is a is a hot topic uh, in the last 12 months at international conferences of privacy regulators and all over the place.
0: Well, you and I but need nobody, to talk about that one in general. But pers- we do, because nobody stops to say
1: what they mean when they yes! use this word,
0: ethics. Yes, that's and, what I was going to say. Know, like, I, people mean it like do good. That's not what ethics is. It's a thing. Well, it, it
1: could be, but it could be any number of other things, you know. And you can yeah. go back two and a half, three thousand years and look at different um, foundations for ethical theories, and people just throw this this word into the mix as though, well, we all know what that means. We all know what it means to be fair and not to be harmful and to be good. Well, it isn't that simple, actually. Are you a utilitarian? Um, are you trying to 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 have to appeal to some absolute values, some external objective? But what what are you basing this on? And I find that a lot of debates in the privacy space, as soon as uh, people start appealing. To ethics, they, they kind of stop hearing each other or understanding each other because they are almost um, operating at a level of fundamentalism where they just have such different worldviews um, that uh, they haven't articulated, perhaps even to themselves, that there's no real scope for making um, proper uh, progress in those discussions. So I'd love to come back to that.
0: Let's let's do that. And I actually tonight am starting my class at Stanford. Uh, there's a night school program on ethics because I've been reading and reading and reading, but realizing I need to talk to real ethicists to to really get my arms around East versus West, utilitarian, harm based fundamentalism. Um, are we Kant or are we Hobbes? But unfortunately, Absolutely. based on our timing, we can't go on, Christopher. <laughs> oh ho, oh, oh, ho. Oh. <laughs> Shameless, shameless, uh, philosophers' dilemma. Um, I, I just to wrap up, let's give like your summary in thinking this GDPR model. What do companies do about GDPR versus technology in two minutes or less?
1: <laughs> wow, that, that, that's a tough one. I was hoping you'd ask me a different question. Actually, Ooh, uh, what's the question you wanted to be asked? To have, well, a more
0: fundamental
1: rethinking of the whole model. Do we need a a kind of paradigm? shift when it comes to very complex systems with masses of data. So IoT, whether you think it's 20 billion or 50 billion or a trillion connected devices yeah. you know, mediated um, via multiple clouds, the idea that we have to use these transparency rules, give everybody notices, and then we have to get some way of recording the legal basis for the processing, whether it's consent or contract or something else, is not scalable. Indeed, it hasn't been scalable for a long time, but it's starting to look ridiculous in very large cyber physical systems or ecosystems. So I think we need to go back to first principles even though GDPR some people think has only just landed. Actually uh, it may already in some respects be um, obsolete and I think we need to look at the objectives again. Is this about uh, making sure the fundamental human right to say privacy or data protection trumps everything? Oh actually I don't use that word anymore, sorry. Um, yes, thank or you. is it is it, is it actually uh, a bit more um, pragmatic than that and say, well, actually, there are, there are significant public benefits here in terms of using personal data for healthcare research, using it for uh, public security purposes, etc. cetera? Um, and should we be looking at some kind of balancing of Potential harms of risk, and indeed GDPR does have a lot more on risk assessments and risk balancing than we had previously um, in the EU. But I think the, the, that the Europeans could learn a lot from uh, what's been done in the US. And of course, uh, I'm a huge fan of your Privacy Engineers Manifesto book, Woo! which I'm sure people can go off and buy straight away online after this uh, podcast. Um, but you know, this this gets very nitty gritty and very practical, and I don't want I don't want to lose. Uh, Sight of the underlying principles, these ethical principles indeed, which I do think are very important, but I don't want to um, get stuck with this complicated bureaucratic edifice, really, which GDPR has become, uh, to the point that people don't know what is the right thing to do and they can't actually implement it in practice. And in terms of scalability, just a quick word on that. Uh, If we've got hundreds of billions of connected uh, things... Um, then the idea, as I say, of individual contracts, notices, et etc., is not going to work. There are other models, though. For example, there's the consumer protection model. There's the safety model. There are various insurance models. One of my favourite is actually the uh, the New Zealand uh, model, where they abolished pretty much tort law. Which I guess your U.S. listeners, at least the lawyers, would be very <laughs> excited <upset> about. going what?
0: <laughs> yeah. So they
1: just have got this central. Um, state-backed compensation scheme, if you have any kind of accident, and it could be um, uh, in a car, it could be in a a, a hospital surgery, it could be some piece of technology that malfunctions, you are compensated. And it takes out of this all of the question of of the the causation chain proving, you know, who, who shouldn't be able to pass the buck any further down the chain to the next person and so on, Um, And that that is a radical alternative that is not going to be popular in in the U.S. with lawyers at least, but it's the sort of thing we need to start talking about because we cannot scale in an effective and fair way the one-to-one type um, privacy compliance and contract enforcement for liability and tort enforcement models that we have at the moment.
0: I could not agree with you more, Christopher. And this is why I always love talking to you, because I think until you do get back to first principles and you continue to question, even as you comply, you know, we're all hands to the air, we're complying, but I think we do have to continually pick the best of each model, watch it in motion, look at it as a data story if you're an agile developer, uh, a use case scenario type person, or, or even just a, a, a beta and look at all of our experience to date and say what's working, what's not, and then what has changed vastly and, and completely and indelibly in the environment where we're we're actually not going just two miles an hour anymore. Indeed.
1: <laughs> and we've got to do it in a collaborative, um, interdisciplinary way, so, you Absolutely. know, the lawyers can't do it alone. The computer scientists, the engineers, they can't do it alone, the designers, the regulators, And we we all have tended to, well, many people operate in bubbles on privacy like they do in so many other things these days. And we've got to break down those boundaries because we're not going to solve these problems on our own.
0: That's right. That's right. Well, Christopher, I'm getting um, people hand-waving from the booth that we have to cut off for this session. But please come back for another ride on ethics. Um,
1: Absolutely. Delighted to do that, Michelle. And it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I'm glad we finally managed to do this.
0: Yay! I'm so glad. And thank you for your grace. Last time we were supposed to record, I think I had a tooth taken out and it was dreadful. You're much better than pulling teeth.
1: Well, I I, I guess I should take that as a compliment. Absolutely.
0: My takeaways from uh, Mr. Millard today, oh, and by the way, Christopher, I've secured tickets to the Mayball in Cambridge this year, so I may be knocking on your door to come by and give me a turn on the dance floor. Please come visit us. Absolutely. I shall, I shall. Um, So my takeaway from today, closing remarks with the wonderful, extraordinary, and a little bit incendiary, Christopher Millard. Those Brits, they're quiet, but they bring a big stick. Hey, bring a snack to your next parole hearing and tech is sexy. It's a wrap for the riders. Thank you very much, Mr. Millard.
1: Thank you very much, Michelle.
0: You've been listening to Privacy Sigma Riders, brought to you by the Cisco Security and Trust Organization. Special thanks to Corey Westerhold for our original theme music. Our producers are Susan Borden and David Ball, and a special shout out and thank you to our Cisco TV production partners. You can find all our episodes on the Cisco Trust Center at cisco.com slash go slash writers Or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts then please take a moment to review and rate us on itunes to stay ahead of the curve between episodes consider following us on facebook linkedin and twitter and you can find me michelle dennity on twitter at mdenity until next time